my sister. I am your mind. Within you is a never-ending magnitude of infinite strength, wisdom, and will. You travel my roads through life never knowing your own true reality because my thoughts remain like distant quasars. You abuse me, never letting me say and do as I feel. Our thoughts split from love affairs to choice of friends. We argue like two enemies, yet we are good friends. Now there are moments when we harmonize with each other and become one with nature and reality. But these times are few, when after you have replenished yourself, the fear of the truth sets in. We split and you start to run again. Running, 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 running through women, men, jobs, people, and life, looking for the answer when I had it all the long. But I smile, because I am your mind. I was your mind yesterday, I am your mind today, and I'll be your mind tomorrow. And as our end draws near, we will become closer, but you and I... You and I, we will never be one. For I will part from you, and you will part from me. You finding another mind, and I another soul. And we'll travel on, and on. By the way, I need more than sex to nourish my equilibrium. But I do need sex. Also need sun, trees, stars, creativity, and love. But you saturate my soul with too much of one and not enough of the other. Therefore, I cry. But You're listening to WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem.
Welcome to Inclusionism, everyone. It's Sunday, 5.30 p.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. I'm James Felton Keith, and this is one of our earliest shows for inclusionism. I'm sure any of you regular listeners have been hearing the, um, the promos in the week leading up. But before we get started, before I introduce my, my guest uh, this week... I wanted to talk a bit about what inclusionism is, what inspired 
this particular show, um, what leads us to be talking about this particular issue here in New York City, in Harlem at this point in time. Um, inclusionism is a, is a broad scale concept around inclusion across many factions of life. I think a lot of people think about diversity and inclusion. They think about uh, gender rights. They think about um, education. They think about racial rights. They think about things like that. But when I say inclusion, and more specifically, uh, when I say inclusionism, I'm talking about uh, inclusion in every facet of life. I'm talking about inclusion down to the data points that make up life. Uh, so on this particular show, we're going to talk about human rights. We're going to talk about economic inclusion and economic rights. We're going to talk about activism. We're going to talk about gentrification. We're going to talk about politics uh, as much as we possibly can before we get, you know, cut off the radio. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, uh, topics that are seemingly far away from the popular conversations of the day. And that's where, really where we're going to go today. Um, today I'm welcoming Albert Fox Kahn, um, who's an attorney here in the city. Uh, he's the executive director and founder of uh, a new institution called STOP. They're at stopspying.org, uh, and that's just stopspying.org. Uh, uh, I encourage anyone who's near a computer to go and check out the website. But uh, Albert's an interesting figure uh, on his own. Um, outside of, of this particular institution. Uh, he was previously the inaugural legal director for Care NY, uh, overseeing that organization's legal services, impact litigation, government affairs, you name it, uh, over the past of the two years, which are, you know, the first two years of the Trump presidency. Um, he also, you know, worked in the, in the corporate world and, and private practice uh, for a while, He's a Harvard Law grad. He's uh, frequently on, you know, shows that are familiar, CBS Evening News, ABC News, NPR, all things considered. Um, and we met uh, really just about a week ago. I was uh, doing a panel with the Harvard Law's uh, Women's Alliance around uh, technologists and lawyers and how we prop up the principles of democracy uh, in these increasingly technological times, in these increasingly uh, troubling times. Uh, and so, so the panel went on. It, it was a good time in general, but uh, Albert and I uh, stumbled upon each other on really an issue we sort of share. I think the concentric circles of our work overlap across uh, surveillance, and Albert can get more into what STOP is and, and what his organization does and, and sort of one of my core issues, uh, which is geared around data, data ownership rights, and sort of the, the moral and ethical use of individuals' personalized data in governmental spaces and in corporate spaces. So with that said, uh, I'll welcome Albert. Thank you uh, for joining me here in the studio today. It's such a pleasure to be here, JFK. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so can we start the conversation with, um, I guess, what, what is STOP? What does it stand for? And what sort of motivated um, the, 
the establishment of this particular institution? Yeah, so STOP is a new civil rights org or a grassroots advocacy organization and legal services provider. And it came out of my work with the Council on American Islamic Relations, where I was fighting against the Trump administration, but also fighting against some of the anti-Muslim policies we see here in New York City at the state and local level. And during those two years, I saw that there is a real need for an organization to take on surveillance at the local and state level, to take on surveillance you know, that usually flies under the radar. Because we have all these great debates about privacy, about technology down in D.C., but a lot of the same tools are being used here in our neighborhood precincts without any of the oversight that we've come to expect. And so right now, we, uh, we're up and running. We've got a number of lawsuits against the city. We've got a federal class action lawsuit against the NYPD. We've got a lot more lawsuits to come. And we're also pushing a number of bills down at the city council. So a lot of new lawsuits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, many, how many in total would you, would you say? And is, uh, is volume important at all here? Is that a, is that a thing or...? I mean, it's not the most important measure, but sure. my, one of the key things for us is to make sure that we're taking on these issues whenever we have the chance, that we're not really letting some of these privacy violations slide, because yeah. once you set that trend, once you normalize this sort of data collection, you're not just setting a social norm, you're sometimes inadvertently setting an illegal norm through inaction. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. One recent policy that really concerns us is the fact that the Taxi and Limousine Commission is now requiring Uber, Lyft, and other rideshare providers to give minute-by-minute GPS location data for every car operating in the city. Hmm. That goes into a database owned by the city along with information about the passengers, along with information about the drivers, and really ambiguous privacy protections. And it's unclear at the end of the day how that data is being safeguarded, not just from the Trump administration, not just from ICE, but from the NYPD, and to what extent that now becomes a policing resource. So that's fascinating. So in, in my work, uh, for, for anyone here who, who knows me, I think they know I, I normally am interacting with private companies and how they use data. Would you say, is it safe to say that you all are focused on just governmental entities and how they're using data? Or are you also looking at uh, litigation and legislation that affects private companies? Our our main thing at the end of the day is empowering individual citizens and making sure that their their rights are protected. But where we see the biggest uh, impact is targeting the government use of these surveillance tools. That said, where there is misuse, misconduct by private companies, that could potentially come into play. But really the focus for now is the NYPD and other city and state law enforcement agencies. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah. Uh, I wasn't even aware of that. You know, I actually had a, and I don't know if this ties into this at all, but I got back into the city last night from New Orleans, and I got a taxi mm-hmm. from JFK uh, back here in the Harlem. It was a crazy, t- it was like a $70 taxi. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it would be 70 you know, bucks until uh, I got back. Um, I thought it would be about 40 Anyway, um, there was a long line waiting because there were, there were women who were running the taxi line outside claiming that the taxis who were lined up, and it looked mm-hmm. plentiful, like we all just wanted to get home. Can we ca- take any of these taxis? They were saying that these were fake 
mm. drivers, yeah. which will baffle me because they had taxis that looked like New York taxis, but they have uh, uh, tablets and there's a database of registered taxis who are supposed to be next. Yeah. And these guys weren't uh, in there. Is this database? I mean, because as I was standing in the line, the two families in front of me and the guy behind me were talking about how they should have used Uber and Lyft, but they were using these taxis because they were trying to be supportive mm-hmm. and avoid, and this was what was most shocking to me, they were trying to avoid the um, what they thought was the data mining of their goings-on, their movings around the city mm. in Uber and Lyft. And I wasn't actually sure what was going on with these women in the tablets and the process that yeah. uh, wasn't being executed. But does this tie in to any of that or is it just and that's a great example because we see all these ways that uh, quote unquote smart cities are using increasingly powerful data tools in order to provide a regulatory infrastructure you Mm -hmm. know to build rules for the 21st century and that's not always a bad thing and you know we're not we're we're not always just going to come in and say it's wrong to collect the data it's wrong to have that tablet that's screening fake taxis at the airport our role as an advocacy group as a litigation group is to come in when we see discriminatory rules when we see rules that go too far that collect more data than we need and rules that violate the promise that new york should be a sanctuary city so the interesting thing about what the language that you just used uh, is the more than we need language. So what mm-hmm. is, uh, are you able to classify it all for me? What is too much and what is just enough? Like what do these particular companies need? Well, it really comes back to the city's stated purpose for data collection in the sure. first place. And what we see more often than not is that the city will come in with, for example, with Uber and Lyft, they'll say, we need to collect trip data in order to make sure that people are being paid a minimum wage. That's a respectable goal. Sure. That's a great goal. I support strong minimum wage laws. But then they're saying, going the step mm. further and saying, We're not only going to measure when you start driving and when you stop driving. We're not only going to measure how far the trip is. We're going to map out your exact route minute by minute with GPS and then gather it for that purpose. And for me, that's an example of them getting more data than they need for the purpose that's stated and inviting unintended consequences. So the, so the new sort of legal rigor for these municipalities, or really anyone is involved, is you have to state what you're using the data for because, because the data is still there. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean if, if a database is tracking, you know, all those GPS movements, it is regardless. But uh, I guess what you're saying is the difference is how the city uses the information that they have. I mean, I guess and this- as a tech guy, I guess there are ways to, to limit what data goes into the database from a GPS standpoint. But I would think ideally you, you'd want that from some sort of, or for some sort of analytics around, I mean, you could use it for city planning, you could use it for traffic, you could use it for infrastructure that you're building around roads. You can't. And so there are always ways that they could use the data down the road. And if they come back and say, this is what we need it for, that's a different conversation. The problem is right now they're gathering the data faster than they know what to do with it. And in the process, they're creating a lot of these unintended consequences. So, for example, Mm. Mayor de Blasio has promised over and over again Mm. that we're going to be a sanctuary city, that Mm. we're going to protect undocumented New Yorkers. And one of the ways we've done that is by limiting the data we collect. 
because under federal law, it's really hard. Mm. It's really hard to tell ICE, hey, we've got this database, but you can't get it. Oh, it is. It, it really is. So that's why in 2017, we passed sanctuary city bills that said, okay, rather than trying to stop ICE from getting the data, we're not going to collect it in the first place. And the city acknowledged that blocking data collection was the best way to protect undocumented New Yorkers. Hmm. But now they're collecting all this data in, on GPS data, uh, data about w- where we go in the subway system with the new Metro card replacement. And oh, they're yeah, aggregating right, right. all of it. And that poses the exact same risk to undocumented New Yorkers that we acknowledged back in 2017. So that is one of the core drivers of it. So now you're making me think about So uh, I, say, I guess outside of this, my, my group, the, the Data Union, mm-hmm. we are a part of the NY Counts 2020 Coalition. Yep. There are, I don't know, 157 or so and growing orgs. Are you all participating with that? Or? I've worked a yeah. lot with them through the New York Immigration Coalition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah, they're definitely one of the leaders. We They took a, a large group of us up to Albany a few weeks ago. Um, but... So as sort of the, usually being the tech guy in the room, mm-hmm. when everyone asks about, uh, you know, what data is being collected, how and, and, and how it may be used, sometimes I'm talking about the real risks. Sometimes I'm talking about, you know, what's necessary. But you're making me think about uh, the conversation that we have. So I'm on the tech. There's a mm-hmm. sort of tools committee, and then there's also a, um, a communications committee. Mm-hmm. And one of the core things that we're trying to communicate about 2020 is that this is the first time that the census will happen digitally, yeah. but that it should not deter folks from filling it out, which is, and I'm sure you've seen where we're trying to raise, uh, I think the number right now is $40 million. I was an advocate for it being 60 because California is spending about $98 uh, yeah. 98, 98 million, million, yeah. yeah. Um, so th- they're spending that much. To their uh, credit, they're a bigger state than us. But um, as we have these conversations, we're trying to figure out how to fuel these small community-based organizations to help folks fill out the census. Yeah. But per what you're saying, and a lot of our conversations, it's safe, it's okay. And while there are limited risks inside the census system, there are plenty of risks outside the census system and how you access it. Um, but you are, the language you're using right now is making me think about the fears that you know, marginalized communities in general have about filling out the census or anything for that matter. Um, and just the pervasive fear. Completely. And actually, I I submitted a brief in the federal civil rights lawsuit Mm. against the uh, against Wilbur Ross for including a question about immigration status in the census, because, you know, I I work a lot with the Japanese American community Mm. and they will often point to how census data was used to in turn. Yeah. Americans of Japanese descent during yeah. World War II. So, yeah. And here in New York, we know that census data was used post 9-11 as part of the targeted deportation efforts targeting Muslim American communities. So that's what you, so the real reason you triggered uh, those, those thoughts to me was because when you say it's really hard under federal law mm-hmm. to say that there's a database that exists mm-hmm. and then deny ICE or... I'm assuming any other uh, arm of the government yep. access. Yep. Um, that goes right against 
what we're constantly telling everyone with regards to the census, which is that this data is off limits. Which is different with the census because there is a specific federal statute that says that census data cannot be used for any law enforcement purposes uh, until, and it cannot be used by any agency other than the census, I think until 80 years after uh, the census takes place. So there's a specific federal law that's in place on that. Unfortunately, when we're talking about city databases and state databases, Mm. we can pass all the laws we want, but the federal government can preempt us. And if we pass a law as a state saying that you cannot access this data if you're ICE, that doesn't mean that a federal court won't order us to do it. And more importantly, there's a federal law that would strip us of billions of dollars in funding if we did. So... Let's pause right there really quick. We'll take a a quick break and come right back to that because I think this is fascinating with the the differentiation between the databases that we know exist and government access to those. Um, So we'll be right back. Mic check, mic check. Keep it locked on WHCR. 90.3 FM. Okay. New York. Some sounds booming out of Jeep where I'm from. Cocoon tied to you. Swoon units hundred proof. You want some beef? They will cut you some where I'm from. The beats is infinite where I'm from. Voodoo at Shubanine. Gangsta lean where I'm from. I'm interplanetary. My insect movements vary. It's kinky if it's hair. Jeep where I'm from. The fire hoses blow. It's purple when it's snow. I do a hit and go. Split. It's hip, what's hip, when hip is just the norm Cause planets pledge allegiance to the funk in all its forms The kinks, the dance, the prints on all the shirts My grandmother told my mother it's Africa at work On vibes, we freak, them universal beats You find it at the spot, you hear the ends of every week We twist, exist, to spin the maddest hits Up here funk is our neighbor, so we paid her a visit The lip we sit can house the nine zips For rock, we can't do nothing, but it's we come equipped Off disc, off tape, rap blast until from eight The really truly fat, the fly, on the flip Coco gotta know how planets gotta roll. Speak the mega cool, get funky as a goal. It's calm, relax. We're only some new jacks that acts on the funk, but don't play the role. Where you from? Wicked dick plans got team. Where I'm from? Where I'm from? It's Clarence 13. Where I'm from? Where I'm from? Brothers took the beats and got fly. Why? That's most ass by 85. Where I'm from? Faking the funk, you get dead. Projects, tenements, pyramids. 
pyramids where I'm from, we're living off that boom boom crack. It's that hip hop rockers jazz when I max. Peace be the greeting of the insect tribe. Pestilent forces can't catch the vibe. We live to love and we love to rock mics. We speak in ghetto tongue, cause ghetto's the life. So get a buffet plate The lyrics are so fat You might gain weight So just watch me step alone Into the sunset Left foot, right foot One, two, mic check Brewing funk inside my soul kitchen So pull up a chair Here's a bit, have a listen A hard hit intervene Damn, I know you flew yeah, it Yeah, cause doodle ain't having it And butterfly knew it Where you from? Stretch for mad blocks. We can get a kick without no breath. Feeling funky beats go straight to the head. Fall into a club, dig on what we love. It be past six before we reach bed. But a fix of relics, we say those are fat. Doodle making silk, the quad, where it's at. We knew the step was set for rap to take a step. So we treat our clips just like busting caps. Whip it till dawn, kick it till dawn. Hip hop is a fix or else we be gone. People thought they can't it. Rap is not by bandits. Diggable planets got it. We're back with Albert Fox Khan of StopSpying.org or just stop. Um, Albert, what's the... So stop is an acronym, no? Yeah, we're the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. And our goal is to really make sure that here in New York City, we have civilian oversight of the tools that we're using to surveil our own people. Yeah. Um, That word is so triggering Mm. i think to so many people when they hear surveillance in general i know that there's a new book out called surveillance capitalism and when we look at all the the largest companies on the planet right now they're all you know what we would i think traditionally call data-driven companies it seems as though they're surveilling us to make their market demand but um is that is there do you do you foresee is society becoming more comfortable with the idea of everything being documented or, you know, or not? Do you see more? I mean, I think for me the question always is documented by who? Because, you know, this changes from country to country. If you talk to my friends in Germany Mm -hmm. and you talk about corporate surveillance, to them that is the biggest risk. That is the biggest threat. And they don't care as much about the surveillance on the government level. But for me, as a civil rights lawyer, as someone who sees the way that surveillance data is used to over-police communities, to target communities for deportation, to target communities for all the sort of discriminatory policing we've seen for generations, for me, the biggest risk is surveillance by the government. And I think those are two different questions. It's interesting. I want to get into some very local issues here, but you have taken me 
far out of this. So yeah, the majority of my work is normally, you know, writing and talking about data and data ethics in general. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just in, in Copenhagen uh, with the Prime Minister of Denmark, and there was this big data ethics conference, and it was sponsored by the Pension Fund, which is one of the largest uh, in the world, or their sovereign wealth fund, and uh, a trade association of insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So my real... My real background, I guess what I, I think people often ask me, like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I, I just do a radio show on Sundays. Uh, well, now I do. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm really in insurance. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm normally looking at risk and how we either manage it or transfer. And all risk transfer is just what we would call uh, insurance. Anyway, I'm talking with these folks about the, this new law that we have over there that a lot of us Americans participated in early drafts of called the General Data Protection Regulation. We call it GDPR for short, and the reg is written for private companies, not government per se, and a lot of the conversation from the audience to the prime minister uh, after he spoke was around what regs are they going to build for the government. So like, so you have this GDPR for us yeah. or for the industries that we insure, you know, the, the Googles of the world uh, and anyone who's, you know, scared about fearful of them or, or anyone who loves them, uh, et cetera. Uh, I'm a big fan of things that they've done. But um, they're like, well, how do we regulate the government? Um, because over there they have, they call it the welfare state, but it's really uh, a way that they universalize uh, healthcare and education, uh, among other things. But those are the two bigs. And, you know, he didn't really have a response for that. He didn't need a response for that. It wasn't a, a real political issue at that point. But industry was worried about it. And... It's interesting over here how you're, you're talking about uh, mostly government uh, and sort of presence that we can create at government for industry because government regulates industry. Uh, I wonder if here in America, us not having a GDPR, if our best course of action, and I guess this is the question for you, is the best course of action to build more rigid controls in government first and then watch those expand out to industry. I think it's indispensable because mm -hmm. we can be get a free rider benefit to an extent on the GDPR uh, work that's being done in Europe mm -hmm. on these other regulations because a lot of these global tech behemoths, they have to comply globally. Yeah. They can't effectively say, okay, we're going to apply the GDPR, but not to you, Harlem, not to you, Brooklyn. No, right. we're, we all get the benefit to an extent. And, and so I think where we can move the ball most here as you know activists as advocates is in what laws we pass at the local level because that's where we have a chance to really transform how data is handled how yeah. privacy is respected in a way that no one else can because there isn't going to be a GDPR that restricts the NYPD. Only the, you know, the voters of New York are going to be able to create those sorts of restrictions at the end of the day. Well, now that makes me think about, so, uh, you know, I've had some of my good friends are, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Hawk Newsom, who runs uh, Black Lives Matter Greater New York mm -hmm. here, and they produce some policy proposals for the state legislature around, uh, you know, better policing in general. And I even think about people running for president of the United States right now who talk about, you know, I hear folks like Andrew Yang talk about uh, a camera on every officer, et cetera. And so but you're not talking about the, the data that we're pulling from government and government officials. You're talking about the data that government and government officials are pulling from 
private citizens. Exactly. So definitely support body cams, definitely support a lot of those initiatives. But what we're looking at is, let's say, the NYPD gang database, Mm -hmm. which collects information on Mm -hmm. thousands of New Yorkers, overwhelmingly black and brown New Yorkers, Mm -hmm. while largely ignoring the threat posed by white supremacists Mm -hmm. and white nationalists. So when we had a Proud Boy attack on the Upper East Side, where they are beating up people in the streets, Mm -hmm. and even months after that, when we asked the NYPD, are they in the database? Is this white supremacist group that is beating up New Yorkers in our street in the database? They say no. Is that a part of the, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, this is a dumb question, but I have to ask it just so that it's on the record. <laughs> so that's not a part of the open data initiative, that database? No, right. no. So largely one of the issues we see is that open data, FOIL, a lot of those transparency tools, they've been gutted mm. for the NYPD. You know, So we have a really great privacy laws except law enforcement, except where we need it most. So one example is, you know, Mayor de Blasio went to the state's highest court to really dismantle a law that we call FOIL, uh, Freedom of Information Law. He said, you know what? We want to exempt police disciplinary records so the public doesn't get to know if officers have been charged with excessive force or um, brutalizing suspects in the past. We want to exempt any information about surveillance. They got the NYPD given the same exemption Mm. that the CIA gets, something called a Glomar exemption, to say, we neither confirm nor deny if you've been the subject of an investigation. Now, that is one of the wildest things I've ever heard. So I I didn't know. I didn't know that. I'm actually... I'm a, I'm slightly embarrassed that I did that. I <laughs> We're I wanted, getting in the weeds. Yeah, I wanted to nod and go, yeah, right. They they're doing that. Uh, no, I didn't know that. And so, but that's huge. If you know, I, I think about the. I think it was a quote from the mayor of Denver, one of the previous mayors of Denver, about you know if you know the 19th century was about uh, empires and the 20th century was about nation states and the 21st century is very much so about cities. Mm-hmm. And as we see, you know, relative chaos and infringement on people's human rights across the globe uh, from a nation-state standpoint, you know, this idea of sanctuary cities is, mm-hmm. is sort of all we have. People are clinging to the New York, L.A., Paris, Londons, et cetera, of the world. And, with, yeah, telling me that the regular law enforcement uh, institution, which would be like, you know, the military or FBI is getting the same exemption that spies get is... Well, number one, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, number two, it leaves us it leaves us so vulnerable. I guess this is the obvious. So my my next question for you is what as a lawyer, mm-hmm. as a litigator, what what steps can we take? Like can we can we soon be successful around this issue or is it a regulatory and legislative issue? So, so we have a lot of different tools in our arsenal, and some of them work better for different problems. Mm. So right now I have a class action lawsuit against the NYPD for forcing Muslim women to take off the hijab when mm. they're arrested, mm. to undress against their will and be photographed for the mugshot without their religious attire, even though they don't need to wear it for their passport or their driver's license. And so that's something where we thought we need to go to court in order to stop this. Hmm. But then on the surveillance front, there's some issues where we think legislation is the best tool. So in 2017, we passed a law that created a a transparency task force Mm -hmm. for artificial intelligence and automated decision systems. First of its kind in the country. Hmm. An initiative to bring like 
technologists and advocates and other experts together in the same room and come up with a standard for what does it look like for a 21st century city to make itself accountable Mm. for the bias that gets baked into some of our algorithms? How do we make ourselves accountable for the injustice that comes with some of the forms of automated decisions? And that's a task force I participated in for the past year where we were very hopeful that we would have a chance through this legislative route to come up with best practices. But unfortunately... I was going to say, how did that turn out? Yeah. It kind of went off the rails. (laughs) How is the task force doing now? Well, we have a city council hearing on Thursday, which is going to be the first public airing of what's been going on behind the scenes. This Thursday. yeah, Yeah, this Thursday down at the city hall. And it's really important because... For something called a transparency task force, it's been incredibly opaque. It's had no public engagement. They just announced that they'll be having two town halls, but it's unclear who will get to speak, who will will be present, and what meaningful input there will be. They've had one page on their website. They've gone up to all of two pages now Mm. to describe the task force. And really, what started off as this incredible visionary process has been stymied by bureaucracy, especially by a lot of gatekeepers within the city who don't want outsiders asking questions about what systems we use already and how those systems potentially impact all of our rights. It's so troubling because I think there's so much opportunity for innovation, new product design, new employment to remedy, uh, just really antiquated systems, you know, and and I totally get uh, the potential for embarrassment by gatekeepers, by, you know, staffers of of sorts across different departments who don't want folks to see who's doing what. But what's really happening now, and I think this is where political leadership comes into play, is someone needs to say, this is about us updating old systems. So we know we're going to see some ugly things, Mm -hmm. um, but we absolutely must see them so that we can just function, period, in this place, because... The city is growing, uh, you know, it, and it will continue to. And we have to, you know, facilitate quality of life for, for so many more people. So so anyway, so this event's happening on, on Thursday. At what time and where? Uh, so it's at City Hall. I believe it's 1 p.m. But okay. I'll, uh, we'll post something about yeah, it. Yeah. And so that will be a great opportunity for people to hear from a lot of the advocates who are pushing for the city to do a lot more. Yeah. But one of the bills I'm working on that I think is really going to be one of the most important reforms we have in the city is something called the POST Act. Mm-hmm. The Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology Act. Another acronym. Yeah, yeah we right. love yeah. our acronyms. <laughs> and basically what the POST Act says is it's not going to stop the surveillance. It's not even going to tell the NYPD it can't use specific surveillance tools. Yeah. All it's going to do is close a loophole that lets the NYPD buy as much surveillance gear as it wants without any oversight by elected lawmakers. Because today, yeah. if the NYPD gets... from the city for a stapler, for anything else, that's accounted for. That goes through appropriations. That goes through oversight. But when they get money from the federal government, from private foundations, they don't tell lawmakers anything about it. And what we're saying is you have to tell us what tools you're using, and you have to tell us about the policies you're creating to make sure that those tools are keeping us safe. So... You, how are you making sure that that data isn't being shared 
with the federal government? How are you making sure that data collected on third parties, Mm -hmm. on just innocent bystanders who are standing next to the people being targeted, doesn't get swept uh, swept up in all of this? How is the how is the task force? Uh, how did it come together? Like who? How were the participants? Number one, how many participants are on the task force, and and how was everyone picked? Was it application process? Or? Oh no, far yeah. less transparent than that. <laughs> so, um, so the city law said yeah. that you're going to have a group of experts, technologists, and members yeah. of nonprofits who advocate for those who are impacted by these tools. I remember some uh, of that. Yeah. yeah, so that's like really focused on outsiders. Mm-hmm. What they ended up doing is they pulled together a lot of experts, mm-hmm. but uh, 12 in total. Mm-hmm. But then they also added six uh, members of city government. As, as members of the task force as well. Mm-hmm. And those are just the official members. Part of the problem is we see a lot of unofficial members who have been actually leading this process, mm-hmm. members of city government who have been giving us draft language, giving us the proposals, really controlling how this operates. Huh. And so you know, these are the sort of things that you wouldn't expect in a transparency-focused or task force, but unfortunately that's how city government works a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I used to rant and rave about how grand transparency was and how we were leading into this new time where we, we could see and know everything, the the age of knowing. And um, anyway, it's a, it's always interesting how how present politics always is mm-hmm. and, uh, and real change is a, is a more uh, rigorous process. Um, but, okay, so, so now that we have this transparency group i guess the the new fight is to make sure that it, it exists well but um let's say let's say the whether it's via the task force or new legislators that come into to city council or even the um the state and federal government uh that affect new york city um as they come about and change the the regulations how just from a wearing your lawyer hat mm-hmm. how um at risks, at risk, uh, are city departments when um, claims of uh, you know flagrant or fraudulent or other sorts of activity happen? Like how how much risk are they really taking on? Like do they really have to answer to us? Are they, you know, is this too new of a space when we talk about data and data collection to make good cases for? For wrongdoing. I mean, do people think that we're talking about tangible things here or sort of abstract techie things that that don't really affect them? You know? it, it really depends. I mean, part of this, the problem with this fight is it sounds so intangible. Mm. It sounds like it's completely like this is just theory. This is just philosophy. But then well, what happens when your kid's denied that space in the public school that they wanted? What happens when someone's denied that apartment in NYCHA that they thought they were going to get? We're dealing with resource allocation questions every single day throughout the city, including questions about who gets over-policed and who gets arrested that are being influenced by automated decision systems, that are being influenced by artificial intelligence. And as a lawyer, one of the things that... I was so excited about with this task force is that we don't yet have a, we don't have uh, rules of the road yet. Mm. We don't yet have a good framework for understanding how you measure discrimination, how you measure equity, how you measure justice 
with algorithmic decisions, with AI. And so part of what this task force has to do, not just for the benefit of civil rights lawyers, not just for the benefit of impacted communities, but for the benefit of those same agencies, is give us clarity on how you make those measurements so that agencies aren't doing things that they think are fine, that they think are unobjectionable, but then they find out down the road, no, you were using uh, AI with baked-in bias, and now you've got a lot of exposure in in a new lawsuit. Right, and I think, well... I guess I'm living in the bubble, so I'm. I was gonna say we all know now how uh, how biased artificial intelligence is. We see it, and it's really a a measure of the makers of the AI. But I'm gonna assume everyone else is not aware <laughs> aware of that. And you're right, and that we're getting into the weeds. But that's that's the the point of this show is sort of to tumble down the rabbit hole and some of these more complex ideas to figure out how they. You know, how the, the promise of technology or the fallacy of the promise of technology may actually exclude us more than it has, uh, more than we ever dreamt it could possibly include us. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if, per the because pro- I'm a process engineer. So at, mm-hmm. at my core, sure, my, my industry is, is risk, my industry is insurance, but my training is all engineering. I, I only understand things through processes. Yeah. And so when I think about how we get better, because I get, I get that there are problems, uh, a lot of problems, there are a lot of things we don't know, mainly because of conversations that we have not had in caucus. Mm-hmm. What might the process look like to start to get better? Does it does it necessarily involve giving a department a bit of a break while it discloses how bad off it is so that we can gradually become better? Is that, uh, is that a tool? Is that a, is I that think a it's hard to yeah. know where we want to go unless we know where we are already. And well, I, right. and, and I think, but they that, don't want to tell us anything. No, and I, mean, that, I wouldn't either. <laughs> no, yeah, and I wouldn't I either, yeah. but you know, at the end of the day, this these are civil servants who you know work for all of us, who work for the citizens of New York, who work for the voters of New York, who You're work right. for every New Yorker, regardless of immigration status. Yeah. And they should be accountable to us when we're going through this process of figuring out how these systems already work. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the challenges. I mean, I think there are a couple of different ways you can think about the rules. I mean, it's hard to think about a rule for algorithms unless you think about how the data works as well. They kind of go one. One is hard to talk about without the other. But I I usually find that, you know, guideposts are you want simplicity. Sure. You want systems that not just like two guys in the back room at the agency understands, but Mm -hmm. that all the meaningful stakeholders can say, yes, I may not have a math PhD, but I at least understand conceptually how this is working and how you've designed it to account for bias, how you've made it fair. I think that having disclosure is important. I think having tools, simple tools to empower, you know, every member of our community to understand what decisions are being made in their lives based on uh, algorithms. And so I think there are a bunch of different ways we can approach it, but it's only possible if we have everyone at every layer of government working together with the outside experts to really have an honest self-examination of where we already are and where we need to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, and I do, often when we talk about this, even the event that we um, 
that we met at, I think it was last Monday, uh, I think as I looked out onto the crowd, I think a lot of the faces seemed hopeless. And what I, what I at least wanted to wrap up on is to say, you know, folks, there are a lot of lawyers in the room, and even though technology seems new, it sounds new, it's been branded as a new thing, uh, we've been doing this for a while, and we know how to make general rules, make general sense to each other, and agree on that, and, uh, and only modify those, again, in caucus. So let's just do it. <laughs> again, it's, it's a little bit of work, uh, but we can, we can do that. And so I will say with all the, some of the doom and gloom conversation about where technology has taken us, I am relatively um, optimistic. And so I think we'll end on that. Uh, Albert, just thank you for joining me. Um, and thank you all for, for listening to um, Inclusionism. We'll be back here next week at the, at the same time to talk about a similar but, uh, but adjacent issue. And um, I, I do think that we had a couple of calls during the show, but I want to apologize publicly. I don't think I know how to work the phones here. <laughs> um, so you can, you can uh, listen to this, again, as a podcast at uh, inclusionism.org. Uh, it should be up by, by tomorrow. And um, we'll keep talking about these issues. We'll also post more on the uh, task force meeting that's, that's coming up. And so with that, I'll leave you with one of my favorite songs by Diggable Planets called Jimmy's Digging Cats. Yo, everybody's going retro, right? And I was thinking, if the 60s and 70s were now, Isaac Hayes would have his own 900 number. I know, and MC Hammond would have been a pimp, right? Uh-huh. Yo, and Jimmy, Jimmy would have dug us, right? Get chores, float up to the stars Planets is a spot, about six blocks east of Mars Air soul kicks and crush velvet hats Hanging off the ab with the beautiful snaps Riding the crest with the blessed give a yes Planets kinda funky as if you hadn't guessed Placebos getting blocked, funky joints get rocked Job is not found, we flop from the flesh Weather jeep a lack, peek it as you bend it and float to them raps Butterflies, planets with a jam, eight tracks From the naughty tops with the twist and plaques Look beneath my hat, find the brains that hit ya Metro quite a quick, knows of all the funk that was laid in seven zips Funk is fat, homie, homie, don't you know me Cool is back, give some skin, lay it on me Groovy, you could call it, hip, yeah, you could call we Vicky, sticky fingers stuck us, loot junkies If you diggin' rhyme, then you diggin' rap Jimmy's diggin' this, and we be diggin' that, yeah The song is about Yo, the Black Panthers would have had their own cartoon, right? I know, an 8-track Walkman's, right? True, Jackson 5 would have had dreads. Word, my man, she don't look fly, right? Word, and Jimmy would have dug Nick's plans for real. WHCR, 90.3 FM, New York.